0: Let's open our time in the word and prayer. Father, what a fitting song that we just sang. Ancient words in your holy scripture. Ever true. They are truth. They reveal you and your exalted son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they have the power to change us and to transform us into the image of your son. I pray that as we talk this morning about being doers of your word, That we would be people that would apply the Word of God to our lives intentionally, deliberately. We ask you all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, last week we started a two part uh, sermon from James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. If you could turn your Bibles there if you have them, there are also extra Bibles right in front of you that you're able to, you can grab and open your Bible up to James chapter 1. The title of our message last week, as you know, was Doers of the Word, and this is part two of that sermon. And um, I wanted to read James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. If you are able, please stand for the reading of the Word of God. James 1, 19 says this, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. You may have a seat. I want you to keep your finger there in James chapter 1. We'll return there in a couple of minutes. But I wanted to read, by way of introduction, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 4, one of the most famous parables that he told, the parable of the sower and the soils. In chapter 4 of Mark, verse 2, he says this, Jesus was teaching them with, with many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road. And the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty 60 and a hundredfold and he was saying he who has ears to hear let him hear or listen Then in verse 13 he actually interprets the particular parable for them verse 13 he says to them do you not understand this parable how will you understand all the parables the sower sows the word These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. Who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Go back to James chapter 1. Here, or there in Mark chapter 4, our Lord essentially uh, exhorted His audience to take special care how they listened to the Word of God, the seed. And the point that Jesus was making couldn't be clear. Our Lord's warning is that His hearers, His audience, needed to be careful how they heard the Word of God. That's why He exhorted them, He who has ears to hear, listen. Listen. Or hear. He was not just speaking about, about hearing, but hearing in such a way that leads to obedience, to fruitfulness in their lives, if they were truly followers of His. And following in Jesus' footsteps, beloved, that's essentially what we have here in James 1, 19-25. This is the Lord's half-brother answering the question for us as well, how should we respond to the Word of God? And we began to look at this last week. First, we made the point, if you remember, in verses 19 through 20, that we should cultivate an attitude of humble teachability in response to the word of God. Um, That instead of having this argumentative, combative, or angry response to God's word, they should respond with an eager, attentive attitude of humble teachability. And secondly, in verse 21, that we should labor for our hearts to be spiritually prepared to receive the Word of God. That the Word of God must dwell in us richly. That we must allow the Word of God to make its home in our hearts. But if it is going to do so, if you remember, then we must deal with our sin, with unrepentant sin in our lives. If we want our hearts to be fertile soil for the the seed of the word to bear much fruit, then we must weed out sin from our hearts and lives. The issue, of course, is not perfection. The issue is the progression of your life. Are you content and happy with harboring unrepentant sin in your life? Or is the direction of your life to delight in Christ and to want to be holy as He is holy? If you want your heart to be fertile soil for the reception of the word of God. And so today we're going to look at the third exhortation from this passage that we need to give heed to if we are going to be people who are characterized as doers of the word. If we want to be people who see Christ exalting change in our lives, then we want to see this third exhortation today, and it is this, in verses 22 to 25. If we want to be doers of the word and Christians who are experiencing Christ-exalting change, that we must strive for diligent, wholehearted obedience. We must strive for diligent, wholehearted obedience. Listen, beloved. Obedience to God and to His Word is part and parcel of what it means to be a child of God. Our Heavenly Father who has saved us, who has set us apart from sin unto holiness... He wants us to be people and children of His who are drawing close to Him by means of His Word and appropriating the truth into our hearts and lives. That's what it means to be a child of God, to be a Christian, a, a little Christ follower, if you will. And you follow Him by means of His Word and doing what He says diligently, wholeheartedly, if you are truly someone who belongs to Him. Simon Kistemacher writes this, quote, "...the Christian faith is always active." And stands in sharp contrast to other religions that practice meditation and general inactivity. End quote. In other words, there's no such thing as a Christian who is characterized by stagnancy as a pattern of life, who does not strive to walk in loving obedience to Christ. In fact, if Christ, beloved, has not and is not changing you by His Spirit and His Word, then maybe you don't have Christ at all. There must be change in your life. There must be transformation taking place. And this is why James explicitly demands that his brethren actively obey God's Word in verses 22 to 25 here. Remember the flow of thought. They have been regenerated by the Word of God in verse 18. They have been The new They have experienced a new birth by means of the word of truth in their hearts and lives. He's writing to believers here. They have been charged in verses 19 through 20 to humble teachability. To allow the truth to make its home in their hearts. In verse 21, by dealing with unrepentant sin. And now James, in verses 22 to 25, is instructing them to make sure that the word of God is making a difference in the way that they live. In obedience to the word of God. This is the main exhortation here in verse 22, which says this, But prove yourselves doers of the word. Prove yourselves doers of the word. I want you to notice three things about this exhortation here. First of all, it is a command. It is a command. To prove yourself a doer of the word is a command. It's not optional. Secondly, it is a present tense verb, which means you ought to continually be doers of the word. This is what is to be the pattern of your life, what is to characterize your life. The direction of your life is to be a doer of the word of God. And finally, the voice of this verb calls for active participation on your part. There is no passivity. Passivity. Being a doer of the word requires active participation in our sanctification. Where God is ultimately the one responsible for bearing that fruit in our lives, but he requires our active participation in sanctification. So you and I must be engaged in practicing the truth, deliberately and purposefully thinking about application and how to implement God's word to our lives. The doer of the word here in verse 22 is set in contrast to the hearer only in verse 22 and verse 23. The hearer who deludes himself. Now, something very key here in verses 22 and 23 that I want you to take note of. The word for hearers in verse 22 is a different word than that of verse 19. This word in verse 22 has the idea of being an auditor of auditing the Word of God, if you will. We know what an auditor is, right? Somebody who sits in on a lecture but does not do any of the work. Who doesn't do the assignments. They're not committed to to a grade, if you will. You're just there for the lecture, for the information. Um, You're auditing the class for no credit at all. Very different. You know, there are many people in the church like this, are there not? People who audit... The Word of God, who are auditing Christianity, who sit under the teaching of the Word of God regularly, maybe for years and years and years, but they're not committed to change. They're not committed to being purposeful and deliberate about applying the Word of God. Maybe they don't even get involved in the church. They love information, they love activity, they love entertainment. In some crazy kind of way, coming to church for them becomes about a religious experience. But they're not committed to change for the glory of Christ. And James says these hearers are self-deceived. These auditors are self-deceived. He's not pulling any punches here. He wants us to know that hearing is insufficient. He's not downplaying the importance of hearing. The word of God. But he is highlighting the fact that hearing is a means of obedience to. For the glory of Christ. To active application and change for Christ's glory. So this is a very strong statement that James is making here. If you are auditing the word of God, you are self-deceived. This is precisely the same point that our Lord Jesus taught about the foolishness of not appropriating the truth to one's life. In the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Don't turn there, but let me just read, read for you Matthew chapter 7. And what Jesus says towards the end of his amazing sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7 and verse 21 says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out many demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those are frightening words, are they not? Frightening words to those who would hear the teaching of our Lord, God in human flesh, the living word, and did not follow up with action. Who would profess to know Christ and yet did not obey him. And there are many people, beloved, in the church like that. People who are trusting in some past profession, but there's been no change in their lives. Some form of religion. Maybe even external works devoid of heart, a heart of worship for for God Almighty. Maybe trusting in some past religious experience devoid of power and devoid of the Spirit of God. There are many people like this in churches. And James says that people like that are self deceived. And he illustrates for us now in verses 23 to 24 the self-deceived person. A picture, a humorous yet frightening picture of the self-deceived in verses 23 to 24. Who is in stark contrast with the person who is the blessed one in verse 25. And I want us to see this because in doing so, in presenting these, these these paintings, these portraits of two opposite individuals who respond differently to the word of God. James wants us to know the utter foolishness of not walking in obedience to the Word of God. It is utterly foolish. It is short-sighted not to do so. And he wants us to visibly, graphically see this. So let's look at the negative portrait of the self-deceived in verse 23. Notice. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror... For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So James plays a short film for us here. And the main character of this short clip is this self-deceived man or woman who could be anyone. That's what he says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word. They could be anyone. This individual is a hearer only, but not a doer. He's not characterized by action in his life in response to the word of God. And what is he doing? He He's looking at his natural face in a mirror. He beholds a picture of himself. Now, when we read mirror there in verse uh, 23, we think about a glass mirror, right? That's what we have in today's age. But historians will tell you that glass mirrors really weren't around until late Roman times. Mirrors in James' day were, were small hand mir- mirrors made of polished bronze, silver, or even gold. And these mirrors rested horizontally on tables so that the person who wanted to look at himself would have to bend and look in order to get a clear picture of his or her face. So here is a self-deceived person who looks at himself in the mirror, understands something about his condition, and naturally he becomes aware that something needs attention. Something needs to happen. All of us can identify with this, right? When we wake up in the morning... I mean, we are a mess when we wake up in the morning. Amen? All kinds of stuff has been twisted and discombobulated overnight. Um, And what is one of the first things that you do in the morning when you wake up? You go to the mirror, right? Some of our youth say, nah, I never even look at the mirror. Some of our young men. And it shows, boys, all right? It shows, okay? Well, one of the first things that you do is you go to the mirror... Especially if you're a female, you're not going to be caught dead going out that way if you're a female, right? After you just woke up, into the open. So you look at yourself in the mirror and you realize you need some serious work. You need some serious changes. So what do you do? You look at the mirror. You're driven to action because you see that there's some work that needs to happen. So you take a shower. You work on your face. You put on some makeup, right? You comb your hair. You're driven to action. Because you recognize that something needs to change if you're going to go out public. And it's foolish and careless for you to do nothing about your appearance. And that is precisely James's point here. Here is the person who takes a look, realizes something about himself, but rather than being driven to action, he does nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, the sense of the verb in verse 24, if you look there, of gone away is the the sense that this man takes a quick look at himself and before giving any careful consideration to what he needs to change, before any action takes place, he's already on his way out the door. In other words, he's hasty. He's careless. He's indifferent with response to the Word of God. He's so busy already moving on to the next thing and forgetting what he looks like. And James says, this is how foolish it is when a person does not practice what the Word of God says. The self-decee, see is highlighted, is, is his inactivity is highlighted. His passivity is what ultimately exposes the condition of his faith, that he is an auditor. He's not really a part of the class, if you will. Because he's irresponsive to the Word of God. He's careless. He's hasty. He's not careful consider the arrogance of a person like that why bother to even look in the mirror if you're not going to change anything why even bother i mean do you think that you're a beauty to behold that doesn't need to change anything about your life that you don't need have to have to improve upon your person why even look in the mirror if you're so perfect that you don't even have to examine yourself Maybe you have some blemishes, some messed up hair that you need to work on, right? There's something that needs to happen. James is trying to show us that is how foolish and arrogant it is to continue to behold the mirror of the Word and do nothing about your person, about your condition. James is saying this is the epitome of a wasted life. The epitome of a wasted life. Beloved, there are people in our churches who sit under preaching and teaching for years and years and years, much Bible intake. For years their sins and their rebellion is exposed by the mirror of the Word of God. Over and over again they are told that they need Christ, that apart from Christ they don't have any hope whatsoever, and they don't come to Him. They are told that they're sinners and they need deliverance from the wrath of God. That their only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ and finding forgiveness in His sacrifice. And they won't come to Christ. They won't repent of their sins. They won't turn from their sins and plead for Christ's forgiveness. They won't do it. Instead, they're always questioning everything. Always defending themselves. Always arguing about what is true. And according to the Word of God. Characterized by an argumentative, combative spirit that James has described. And you can show them over and over again what is true from God's God's Word, but they're always going to find some exception. Why something doesn't apply to them? There are many professing so-called Christians in churches like this who are not humble and teachable, who are not committed to appropriating the Word of God into their lives. Beloved, simply looking into the mirror is useless if you're not going to do anything about it. It is useless if there is no repentance. And you may be deceived into thinking that just coming to Calvary saves you. Maybe there are some of you that way this morning. That you give tithes and offerings, that that makes you right before God. That just being around other Christians and Christian fellowship makes you okay. But it doesn't. I would say to you, my long-time Calvary attender, or recent one, be careful if you don't see any change in your life. If you don't see any change in your desires, in a growing commitment to treasure Christ and His Word, beware of that. And out of love, I tell you, if there's no treasuring Christ in your life, then it may be the case that you don't have Christ at all. It may be that Christ is not yours, because listen to me, saving grace is a transforming grace, is it not? If you have been saved by the grace of Christ, he, by his spirit and his word, is going to continue to do a transformation in your life and a change of desires. And the issue, beloved, is not perfection, it's progression, right? The progression, the direction of your life. That you should be a person who is consumed more and more with the with the beauty of the majesty of Jesus, that he's to be your greatest treasure, and sin has less and less of, of a, is less and less attractive in your life. Be careful concerning the absence of loving obedience to the Lord and the danger of deception as a pattern of life. J. Adams writes this quote: "The consequence of this." is that he dulls his conscience. Doing this again and again after hearing the Word and reading God's will in the Scriptures eventually makes it possible for him to convince himself that he's all right after all. Thus, the inner process of deceiving oneself takes place. He builds from himself a, a very different picture of his life than others have, and especially a very different picture of his heart or his inner person than God has." End quote. See, it is very easy, beloved, to go through years and years of just going through the motions and even external ritual with no heart at all. To go through life haphazardly, carelessly, indifferent, inactive, lethargic with regards to the things of the Lord and his word. There are people like that in churches, even ours. And we got to be so careful. Careful. And James says those people are self-deceived if there's no change and no pursuit in their desires of obedience to the Word of God and to do that which God says. Very basic, isn't it? But there are also people in the church who because they don't want to submit to the Word of God and to the truth, they attempt to tear down the truth and destroy the mirror of the Word. I've traveled a lot and I've met people like that going after pastors and preachers of the Word of God, trying to destroy the truth and destroy the mirror of the Word. The story is told of some missionaries who went to a third world country to minister the gospel there with these villagers who had never heard the gospel. And as they were moving their stuff in, one of the missionaries hung a mirror on the wall. And... A village woman came in, you know, all of the civilians are kind of going in and out of these, these missionary homes because they're captivated by these missionaries. And this woman sees this mirror. She was struck by the mirror that was on the wall. And she had never seen a mirror like this before. She didn't know what it was. And as she looked into the mirror, she noticed blemishes and wrinkles and many defects. But she did not know that it was her own person of course, shocked at what she saw, she asked the missionary, sir, who is that horrible object that I see there? To which the missionary answered, my dear, it is you. The mirror is a reflection of your own face. She walked up to the mirror again, gazing long at this mirror and inspecting it from front side and back side. And after doing this for a while, she decided to offer the missionary some money for the mirror. At first, he didn't want to budge. But eventually he decides to sell it to her, and he gave in. So he sold it to her for a very small price. And shortly after giving him the money and taking possession of the mirror, she proceeded to walk up to a boulder, smashing the mirror repeatedly, breaking it in pieces. Shattered. And she told the missionary and the others around her, I will never have that object making faces at me again. You know, the point was she did not like what the mirror exposed in her. She did not want to look at herself and see who she really was because it exposed her countenance. And beloved, in the spiritual realm, in Christian churches, this is how people tend to respond as well. They don't like what the word of God says. They don't like the sin that it exposes. So they try to discredit the word of God or the messenger because they don't like what they're being told. That happens all over the place. And rather than submitting to the Word of God, they're going to go find other mirrors who give them a distorted view of life and of themselves. And what, is that, what does that look like? They surround themselves with people who will flatter them instead, who won't tell them the truth. They'll go to another religion where they will be told how good they are, not how much of a sinner they are, and how much they need a Savior, that they need somebody else, that they're not self-sufficient They will go to other places that will will tell them how great they are and how much self-worth they have and how they don't need to change anything but simply love themselves more as if they didn't love themselves enough already and worship themselves enough. Beloved, there are people like that in our churches who are not just careless and passive, but they're actually rebellious. And once the Word of God exposes their sin, rather than running to the cross of Christ for the mercy and the grace of God displayed in Christ, and turning from their sins, and abandoning everything that they hold dear to, instead of doing that, what they do is that they go to another place. Or they grumble and complain in churches all the time. They become the source of problems and division in a church. So you have careless people who ignore what God says, and you have rebellious people who undermine, dismiss, or discredit God's Word. But of course, not everyone is like this, right? Notice the person who is blessed in verse 25. Here's the positive portrait of the doer of the Word, in contrast to the self-deceived. Verse 25 says, But... One who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. On the opposite end, here is the doer who is presented, notice, as active and deliberate and purposeful and intentional with regards to the Word of God. Maybe he's that guy who, who meditates upon the Word of God who doesn't just read it and clock in and out in his devotionals every Sunday morning and then forgets by the end of the night what in the world he read in the morning. But he memorizes and he meditates upon the Word of God so that it would dwell in him richly. That's the idea. Notice in verse 25, the doer of the Word looks intently at the perfect law. This pictures him bending over to look upon the mirror with eagerness and intentness in order to examine himself carefully and get an accurate picture of himself. He takes a penetrating look at the mirror. And this penetrating look, beloved, is what leads him to action. What leads her to action. Notice in verse 25, some view this the term law Sends messages of enslavement and oppression. But notice here that the Word of God is called the perfect law, the law implied, of liberty. Of liberty. Listen, those who walk in obedience to the Word of God experience true liberty and freedom, beloved. Those who adhere to the Word of God and implement the Word of God into their lives are those who experience true liberty and freedom. That's why Jesus in John 8, 31 said this. Jesus told those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Obedience to Christ and to his word, beloved, is not enslavement. You know why? Because only God tells you what to do and what is ultimately best for you as an omniscient and almighty God. Who is omnipresent everywhere at all times. Who knows everything. Little details and big details about your life. Only he has the infinite wisdom to know what is best for your life. And obedience to him is ultimate freedom, is it not? And liberty. Far from enslavement. Listen, disobedience and unrepentance is enslavement. Obedience to Christ frees us from the shackles of sin and corruption. Obedience to Christ frees us from serving sin, who is a master who is never satisfied. Never, ever, ever satisfied, beloved. If you are involved in some unrepentant sin right now, and you think that somehow you can continue because it's giving you some source of temporary pleasure, it may give you some temporary pleasure, but long term it's going to do nothing for you because it's going to only continue to want more and more and more from you. Sin always lies, God doesn't. Sin always lies. And he's a terrible master. And he's never content. Never content. But faith in Christ, who is the truth, means now coming under a master who promises true, eternal joy and freedom, beloved, in this life, and the life to come. Peace, joy, true, lasting hope the ability to truly love God and love others authentically is found only in Christ and in loving obedience to the exalted Christ and to His Word, beloved. See, those who walk in diligent, wholehearted obedience are those who experience true freedom. Only those. Notice in verse 25 what James says. He says that the doer Abides by the perfect law. He abides by it. The law of liberty, he abides by it. I love this term of abide. It is an intimate word. It has to do with, with remaining or being in intimate relationship with. And that word here in verse 25, the basic word for abide, um, James attaches a little preposition to it, giving it kind of intensified form to remain alongside of. Even more intensified. Really drenching yourself in the Word of God. Delighting yourself in the Word of God. We understand the the concept of abiding, right? Jesus used it in John 15. He said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the true vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So to abide in Christ is to be an intimate relationship with him and do what he says because you love him. To abide in the word means that it is the source of your your livelihood and your sustenance. That you're dependent upon the word of Christ because it is food for you. And you're guided by the truth of the Word of God. And don't miss this. In verse 25. So beautiful. The beautiful promise. The effectual doer in verse 25. Literally the doer of works. Who shows in his life that he's an effectual doer. Who shows his love for Christ by his obedience. Notice in verse 25. This man will be blessed in what he does. How many of you in here want... To have the blessing of God. Amen? How many of you want His favor? His tr- true happiness. Not just in this life, but in the life to come, beloved. If you want the favor of God and the blessing of God, do what God says. Do what the Lord says. Be an effectual doer. Be an effectual doer. Because the Word of God, obedience to the Word of God, promises blessing to those who delight in it. This is why Psalm 1 says this, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. What kind of person is this going to be? He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. You want stability in your life? You want spiritual vibrancy? It doesn't come, beloved, by a lack of appropriation of the Word of God into your life. It won't come. You want a life of true joy, eternal peace, and blessing? Put God's Word into practice. Put God's word into practice, but do so wholeheartedly. God wants our wholehearted obedience if we love him. Now, pretty straightforward truth, isn't it? To walk in loving obedience, to strive for wholehearted, diligent obedience. But if we're honest, there are some dangers that we fall prey to. That maybe we think are actual wholehearted obedience, but are really counterfeit. What kinds of things keep us from diligent, wholehearted obedience that keep us from experiencing God's blessing in our lives? See, oftentimes, we don't wholeheartedly obey because we are forgetful concerning what God says. Forgetfulness concerning His Word. Don't miss the important point that James has just made. There are two people, one who is self-deceived and one who is the doer, equally capable of Different responses of the two different responses. And the self-deceived is faulted for not acting while the doer is commended for putting into effect what God says. Both of them become aware, notice, of the fact that they need, that action is needed. But the self-deceived easily forgets to act upon what he knows. So one key feature of the self-deceived is that he is forgetful. He forgets what the word of God says. He forgets about his condition, if you will. We see this forgetfulness in the history of the Israelites, do we not? Constantly forgetting about God's doings. Constantly forgetting about God's glory. Constantly forgetting about the truth of what God had done for them. About his majesty and his compassion and his justice and his wrath towards them. Constantly forgetting... And that's why Moses in the book of Deuteronomy launched off into a series of sermons and admonitions. And over and over again, what you hear Moses saying is, remember, 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 remember God and remember his acts. Why? So that they would follow through with wholehearted obedience, not a half-hearted one. See, they had become forgetful over and over again about what God had done. One commentator has written this, "...to remember God is to contemplate Him and His acts in such a way that they make a lasting impression on the heart and mind. The person who forgets what he has seen in God's Word is one who reads or listens superficially, not imprinting the message upon his soul. Forgetfulness, then, is not an excuse for disobedience to the Word of God. It is a danger that we must beware of." See, beloved, we don't obey wholeheartedly many times because we easily forget what God says. We don't memorize the Word of God. We don't meditate upon the Word of God so that it becomes, it makes its home in our hearts. We easily fall prey to the busyness of life, to clocking in and out in our devotion times, to just reading something superficially. We're careless. When at the end of the day, if you're not spending time in relationship with Christ and His Word and being empowered by the Spirit to live the Christian life, beloved, it doesn't matter what you do the rest of the day. It doesn't. So forgetfulness is something that we need to be careful. Also, oftentimes we don't wholeheartedly obey, but instead we offer partial obedience. Partial obedience. You remember the period of the Judges? God instructs the the Israelites to completely, totally wipe out everyone from the land of Canaan. Completely. And how do the Israelites respond? Partial obedience, right? Over and over again, we read in the book of Judges that they did not completely wipe out the Canaanites from the land. Over and over again, that's repeated. The writer of the book of Judges wants us to know that they did not obey. They did not obey completely. They offered a partial obedience. And what happened? Those who, the Canaanites in the land, the heathen Canaanites, became a snare to them, drawing them away from worshiping God, drawing them away instead to worshiping idols, to compromise. Their hearts were led away from God, beloved, led away from the Lord. God doesn't want partial obedience. He wants full, complete obedience. We may resort to conditional obedience. Conditional obedience. This type of so-called obedience comes with ulterior motives. It's a type of attitude that says this, I will do this so that God does that for me. Or, if I feel like obeying, I'll obey. In conditional obedience, our obedience becomes dependent on whether we feel like obeying or we don't. In conditional obedience, um, obedience is emotionally or circumstantially driven, if you will. That is not wholehearted obedience. And think about it. Isn't that, this conditional obedience, part of what's wrong with our society? I mean, when obedience to God's Word, to His standard, is emotionally or circumstantially driven, it shouldn't shock us when a man one day wakes up and says to his wife... 40 50 years and I met somebody like this a few years ago. I don't love her anymore. I don't feel love for her anymore And leaves her Maybe because of finances Or a loss of a job and all of a sudden you don't you you don't want to be attached to that person anymore Your love is conditional See, beloved, this is how we treat God many times. If we don't feel like it, or if we, if we don't understand everything He's doing, then we don't obey. Can you imagine if God's love and commitment to us was conditional as well? Imagine that. If God's love for me was emotionally or circumstantially driven, what would keep Him from one day saying, you know, Kempis, I don't feel love for you anymore. This salvation, this redemption thing, I think I've changed my mind about it. God doesn't deal with us that way. Many times we don't offer wholehearted obedience, but we offer reluctant obedience. Reluctant obedience. Okay, Lord, I will obey if I have to. I'll do it if I have to. How many of you parents like it when you tell your son or your daughter to do something? And they do it, but with a bad attitude. How do you take that? Is that obedience? No, not at all. Maybe they do it to just get you off their back. They don't want you to say anything anymore. But you know that their heart is not into it. Many times we do this to the Lord, do we not? We offer reluctant obedience. Our heart is not there. We just want God off of our back. And we somehow deceive ourselves into thinking that we can go through the motions that way without heart and that brings glory to God. It does not. That is not diligent, wholehearted obedience. That is not being a doer of the word. I like this one. This is one that I struggle with big time. Wholehearted obedience is not selective obedience. Selective obedience. The type of obedience where we pick and choose what is most beneficial for us to obey. This is one of the things that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and the religious leaders for this type of so-called selective obedience. The Pharisees were so focused on external rituals and on following laws that brought glory to them before others. But neglected love and compassion for others. And this is why Jesus, in Matthew 23, 23, says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. See, they were largely focused on the letter of the law, beloved, and not the spirit of the law. Some Christians may think I'm a pretty obedient person. And maybe on a superficial level, you may be. Because oftentimes Christians pick and choose the areas where they want to be obedient. We can have the kind of attitude of, I don't smoke, I don't drink, and I don't go out with girls that do. That kind of an attitude. And we reject explicit sins that irk us. Homosexuality. Lesbianism. Prostitution. Robbery. Murder. Murder. Sins that are explicit and irk us and we're dogmatic about those kinds of sins. Maybe sins that even in our cultural fundamentalist churches we we reject. But in the process, we love holding on to respectable sins, as Jerry Bridges puts it. We're selective in our obedience. We entertain unforgiveness, and a lack of grace toward others. We forget to show compassion and mercy to the least of these amongst us, beloved. The orphans and the widows amongst us. The true widows indeed who have nobody to care for them. Those are respectable sins. It may be that you've never even thought about that at Calvary. How do you get involved in caring for orphans and widows in the church? The elderly amongst us who don't have anybody to care for them or visit them. What about the special needs families amongst us? God cares for those people, does He not? Doesn't He? But we somehow dismiss our pursuit of active obedience in those areas because, hey, you know what? Not everybody's doing that. We put up with respectable sins such as slander and gossip. It's hard to, to pin somebody down on those kinds of sins. Partiality and favoritism. Maybe because of you reject certain people because of their upbringing or their social standing or even their race. we got to be careful. The gospel breaks down those walls in Christ Jesus, does he not? Let's not be selective, beloved, in our obedience. And James is a perfect book for us to drench ourselves in, to be reminded of the areas that maybe we don't tend to think about these particular areas where we should be wholeheartedly obedient in. That we may tend to overlook. Just sit down this week and take a survey of the types of sins that James calls these Christians to show wholehearted obedience in. For example, James 1, 2-12. We are to respond in a godly manner to trials and not blame God and question the goodness of God and seek wisdom from God. It is sin not to respond to trials with joy. What about chapter 1, verses 13 through 18? Not attributing evil to God, but remembering that He's always good. That He only gives good gifts to His children. See, we attack the character of God. And it's okay, because it's a respectable sin somehow. We need to confess to the Lord that we constantly question His character and His goodness. And the trials that He's allowed in our lives. What about chapter 1, verses 26 through 27? Where James exhorts them to practice authentic religion in showing mercy to orphans and widows in their distress and to keep themselves unstained by the world. What about that? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, he exhorts them to walk in love and reject favoritism and partiality. In chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, to stop being self righteously judgmental toward one another. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, be careful of the destructive sin of a loose tongue. That's a respectable sin. Let's be careful. Chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, stop being self-righteously judgmental. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, stop making plans without acknowledging God in them. Because this is arrogance. And we are presuming upon God and His sovereignty. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he exhorts the rich to stop wickedly misusing riches or possessions to exploit other people. See, beloved, let's not be selective in our obedience. Let's look at the whole counsel of the word of God. Let's not pick and choose where we will obey and where we won't. Amen? Strive for diligent, wholehearted obedience. And it is the progression and direction of your life, beloved. It is not perfection. Are we always going to obey the Word of God perfectly? No. That's understood. I am per- imperfect and weak and a broken vessel just like you are. But this should be the desire of our hearts, should it not? To lovingly obey the Lord, to strive to be wholeheartedly obedient to Him. And when we fall short, we're reminded of the beautiful reality of the gospel. Amen? That only Jesus Christ is the perfect God-man. He is the perfect God-man, the all-sufficient Christ, and we can run to Him. Say, Lord, help me to to be obedient wholeheartedly in this area of my life, by Your Spirit and by Your Word. I'm so thankful for Jesus' perfect life and for His righteousness that covers me. Amen? Amen? His righteousness that covers us for His perfect life and His death and His resurrection, His ascension. And that one day He's returning very soon and I'm going to be conformed into the image of his, of, of his Son, of God's own Son, the Lord Jesus. Because we have His Spirit living within us, beloved, guiding us and directing us by means of the Word of God, Jesus wants us to pursue loving obedience to Him, wholehearted loving obedience that we may be conformed into His image. How should we respond to the Word of God? Cultivate an attitude of humble teachability. Labor hard for spiritual preparation, that your heart would be fertile soil, dealing with your sin, so that it would bear its fruit in your heart and life. And thirdly, strive for diligent, wholehearted obedience in response to the Word of God, beloved. If you want to be blessed... In closing, I want you to turn to Matthew 7. We already saw, read some verses at the end of Jesus' sermon here. The Sermon on the Mount. But listen to to Matthew chapter 7. And ask yourself, what is your life founded upon? The rock of the Word of God? Or is it on sand? Matthew 7 verse 24. Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them or does them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Beloved, how we respond to the word of God determines your eternal destiny. That's how serious this is. Is your life founded upon the the rock who is Christ in his word? He is the truth, is he not? This book reveals the glory of God in the face of Christ. Is he the one you're building your life upon? The rock of Christ and his word? Or is it sand? Works? Devoid of heart? Religiosity? A past profession with no change in your life? What are you building your life upon? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, these are ancient words, but these are ever true words that reveal the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the gospel and the whole counsel of your word. Father, help us to give heed to your word. Help us to respond by being doers of your word, cultivating an attitude of humble teachability, laboring hard to be spiritually prepared for your word. And help us, Lord, to put your words, your teaching, into action. Help us to be deliberate. Help us to meditate and delight in your word. Help us to memorize your word, to drench our hearts and our minds in your word, which reveals you, that it might lead to greater intimacy with our loving Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.